morning, folks. It's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Welcome to Democratic Perspective. Um, in a moment or two, we've got a really great guest today talking about the upcoming midterm elections. And we're really glad you're all here. And don't forget to let people know they can also download this as a podcast later if anybody of your friends say they missed the show live. And so we'll go to, over to Steve, who's in the show with me. I'm Karen McClellan. We've got Steve Hanks here, and he can introduce our guest. Uh Thank you, Karen. Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, we're going to have a great show today. We have a really terrific special guest that I'm thrilled that we were able to to bring onto the show. But before we start with our guest, uh, we have some uh, announcements about activities coming up with Democrats of the Red Rocks. Um, we're getting closer to the election, as you all know, and Doors activities are really ramping up. So here's what's coming up, and we hope. Uh, many of our listeners can attend some of these. On the morning of uh, Friday, this uh, September 16th, it's the Door Breakfast, which is uh, happening at 9.30. It's the Door Breakfast at home, and our special guest is going to be Democratic Sedona mayoral candidate Scott Jablow. So that w- will be a great um, opportunity to hear what Scott has to say before the election. And this is your the first in-person breakfast, so you can attend this in person as well as at home. Exactly. At the community center. Thank you for that, yeah. Karen. Yeah. Um, and then that evening, Dor is sponsoring a film at the uh, Sedona International Film Festival, Mary D. Fisher Theater. There's going to be a showing of the 1960 classic film, Inherit the Wind starring Spencer Tracy and Frederick March. And um, the reason for the selection of that is, uh, as a film showing for Door is um, it focuses on the 1925 famous Scopes trial about uh, the law that outlawed the teaching of evolution in schools. And it kind of co- uh, links up with a lot of the stuff that's going on uh, with the right wing right now where they are banning books from libraries and from school from school libraries and local libraries in various parts of the country. So we hope you'll attend that. It's Friday night. It starts at 7 o'clock p.m., and there's going to be a panel discussion after the showing of the film. And then on October 2nd, the annual door picnic at the Posse Grounds Hub, uh, starting at 3 o'clock, going till 5 there's going to be music and candidate speeches and food, and it's a great event. Also, a big door fundraiser as we ramp up to the 2022 election in November. And now for our guest. Um, I'm really thrilled that I was able to book this woman. Um, I became aware of her uh, right around the 2018 midterms a time where I was personally massively depressed about what was going on in politics in the country and had a lot of anxiety about what was going to happen in the 2018 midterms after Donald Trump was elected president. Uh, and a lot of people didn't know what was going to happen other than the usual, you know, the the party out of power picks up a lot of seats 
um, in the midterms elections. But, you know, it was very hard to predict that. But there was one woman who did predict it and came very close to predicting the exact number of seats that the Democrats would win in the House of Representatives that year, which ended up being 41. And that person was Rachel Bittacoffer, who is our guest today. Rachel um, is somebody who graduated magna cum laude with honors from the University of Oregon, got her bachelor's degree in political science, and now has a Ph.D. in political science and international affairs. Um, as I said, she was recognized for predicting the size of the blue wave in 2018. Um, she's written two books that I know of, and she can correct me if, um, if I've missed something here. In 2017, she wrote the book, The Unprecedented 2016 Presidential Election on the Election of Trump. She now runs a podcast called The Election Whisperer. And I want to get this in before we forget by the end of the show. She has a 2023 book coming out uh, published by Crown called Hit Them Where It Hurts, How to Save the Democracy by Beating Republicans at Their Own Game, a title I personally love. So it's my pleasure right now to bring on Rachel Bittacoffer, and we, we're going to talk a little bit about, among other things, uh, how how she forecasts what may happen in the 2022 midterms with a focus um, on the Senate elections because the House is so difficult to predict with all those seats. So anyway, Rachel, welcome to the show. Glad to have you here. Well, thank you very much for having me today to talk about the uh, 22 midterms and, and some of the fundamentals that drive our politics today. So, I, you know, it it probably would be better to talk about more big picture theories that you have about how the electorate votes these days. But we can get into that. I want to just go right into um, what you think specifically about the Senate races. This is really um, something that I've been focusing on and I'm, I'm working on my own little uh, non-scientific predictions. Um, I have a feeling that the Democrats could win at least 53 votes of 53 seats in the Senate this year, given, you know, the, 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 the poor candidates that are running on the Republican side. How are you looking at the Senate races this year for the Dems? Yeah, so I'm afraid I'm going to have to insist on the inverse order of operations <laughs> okay. because it's really not possible for me to explain what people should expect here in the fall. Um, without kind of talking about how voting behavior in the modern context plays out. Okay. And it's always great talking to a seasoned audience, um, people with a little bit of, of uh, years or maybe even decades under their belt in experience, because when I start talking about this process called political realignment, people should be able to connect that to their own anecdotal and observational experiences over the course of their lifetimes. And what I'm referring to is, is the fact that the electorate is always in flux in terms of which groups ascribe to which parties, um, you know, which parties advantaged uh, within certain demographics. And I, I believe that process has been in flux since the very beginning of the American party system, which didn't 
initially spin off um, just two competing parties for a long time. But right now, what we're living through, especially if you happen to be in your 70s or 60s, is a time period in which the electorate's regional um, alliances changed completely around. So we think of the South, and we and we know that sometimes Republicans will say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're not racist. The Democrats, the Democrats had segregation. They wanted to, you know, um, to continue segregation in the South. And that's true, but the people are the same, okay? It's white Southern conservatives. And today, what they, you know, the, the party that they align to is the Republican Party. That regional realignment had profound implications on our electoral politics nationally because the stronghold of the Democratic Party was at one time Southern mm-hmm. and rural. Right. <laughs> and if you're paying attention to politics now, you'll know that Southern and rural is a Republican Party stronghold. So um, keeping that into context, what people were observing happen in the 80s and the 90s was a product of, of kind of the heterogeneity of our electorate as people were resorting themselves ideologically into two parties that were one liberal, one conservative, and this regional sort was playing out. We also saw, you know, um, allegiance to to Democrats emerge amongst the African-American community, obviously over that civil rights. I mean, that was the Northern Democrats that caused the entire party to split apart, right? Right. Um, And you start to see... um, this education realignment really become pronounced in the in the mid 2000s as college educated whites start to leave the Republican Party and non college educated whites increasingly outside of the South begin to realign to the Democratic Party. So, if you understand those things and kind of the end of the story in which we have two very sorted political parties with very distinct demographic coalitions comprising them you might be able to understand better why our elections have become so predictable. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you bring up uh, past elections and and the evolution of how um, political energy and and alignment has changed. I'm curious, uh, going back to elections like the Lyndon Johnson election in 64 and the Reagan election in 80, how do you explain... um, you know, the landslide uh, votes that, that those candidates got in those years, given, you know, that everybody talks about, well, this is a 50-50 country. And while we know that really isn't true, is there some, like, political science explanation for yeah, what happened in those? very, very good political science explanation. <laughs> Actually, I should compliment you. That is the perfect way to illustrate this, like, kind of abstract, nebulous thing that I just outlaid. So yes, if let me let me explain something. Mm-hmm. If if the electorate was constant in its attitudes, its construction, its demographic allegiances, and you know, regionally where it was distributed in the nineteen eighties, what would have happened I mean, number one, we would have had a Trump election. I don't think we would have ever seen a Donald Trump Republican nomination, let alone a Donald Trump general election candidate. Those are products of a hyper-polarized system, and that is a product of our electorate as well as other parts of the system. So um, I, I mentioned that because if we were to replay the 2020 election with Donald Trump, what we would expect to see is a, is a shellacking similar 
to what Jimmy Carter got or mm-hmm. Walter Mondale got in the 1980s against Reagan, both of those maps are very distinct in American politics, okay? Mm-hmm. And the reason is is because we're not talking about a, anything close to a 50-50 outcome. We're talking about, you know, one or two or maybe at best three states going to Democrats, and that's across, you know, the Northeast, Massachusetts, Minnesota, all these really deeply, like, at that time, what blue meant, blue places, okay? If our electorate, if our body politic was like that, then we would have seen the same reaction in 2020, and let me explain why. Like, Carter's shellacking was performance-based. I mean, some of it was unfair. I'm sure Democrats uh, listening to this who love Carter are like, wait a minute, right? But um, I so campaigned for him when I was in college. Of so. the manipulation of the media system and, yeah. and being able to, you know, really hit Democrat presidents hard. But um, some of it was just fortuitous, right? He's, he's taking tenure during the high inflation, the oil crisis, and the Iran. Um, the um, the Iran hostage situation, right? Mm-hmm. So those things really impact. You can see, like in the beginning of the election year, and we certainly don't have polling data like we have now, but we have some. You can see that Carter starts off that cycle in a reasonable spot, and then this like really tough election year news cycle hammers and hammers him as Reagan becomes more uh, embraced in the media, and so you see this landslide outcome. The fact that we could not see a performance-based assessment of Donald Trump, and we've never seen that the entire time he was in office, and by that I mean no matter what he did, there was no reaction in public opinion data. It was inelastic, and that is not how public opinion data should be. Um, you know, we would have seen him booted out of the White House in a landslide. The fact that we don't see that is is probably the best evidence that I've been able to offer in all of my articles and writing about um, how hyperpartisanship and polarization affects individual level voter behavior, you and me and, and uh, our friends and allies in yeah. the American electorate, and has changed profoundly especially the accountability measures in our democracy. And, and the fact that there wasn't this hyper-partisanship um, in, in the air uh, in those years uh, accounted for why so many Democrats voted for Reagan in 80 and so many Democrats voted for Nixon in 72. Um, I'm not exactly sure what was going on with Johnson in 64 other than Goldwater uh, seeming like such an extreme candidate, but um, yeah. is that what well, was also happening? keep in mind, like, we're at the very tail end. I mean, we've actually watched the conclusion in the last 15 years of this realignment. I right. mean, I don't think that's the final realignment of the American electorate. If we survive all of this, and 100 years from now, we'll be talking about new patterns of electoral voting. Mm. But what happened back then was a product of you, you had the Southern realignment. Think about what this means. In 1950... There was basically not a single, single elected Republican in the South, not in the state house, not in the federal caucuses, not in the Senate, not in governorships. The governorships, in fact, were still realigning, um, you know, conservative whites becoming uh, Republicans and not Democrats well into the 2000s. I think Georgia's first Republican governor wasn't until 2000. So those large and like fluxy electorates where you had a lot of um, mixed up region, regional vote preference and even ideological vote preference really is a product of, uh, of an electorate that does not currently exist in America.
Yeah. And, and what, what this is leading to, what, what you're, what you're talking about right now, I kind of think, uh, extends to your next theory that I was reading about, which is how the Democrats now, uh, cannot worry about trying to uh, appeal to the moderate ideas of the moderate voters that they have to go after their their base and they have to lean in on their on their being progressives in order to win elections now that's not exactly what my theory is okay <laughs> that's all theory right right um what what my my argument has been for years and now um you know plays out in in direct electioneering activities is this when you look at the, and this is because I was a professor, so I studied anthropologically these two systems and would, you know, teach them to students. And, and, and through that process of, of teaching kids the campaign system, I began to recognize immediately there were massive asymmetries in how electioneering got done, especially in terms of messaging and targeting, how, so like, uh, the Republican swing vote like strategy is, is, is distinct from ours. Ours is to try to win swing voters over to us through our messaging. Their string, swing voter strategy is to push swing voters away from voting for us, knowing that in a two-person system, that naturally defaults them to them, right? right. Yeah. So getting, you know, what I've been, what I've been working on for the last six or seven years is getting people to understand in modern elections, because we don't have this heterogeneity, because we don't have a lot of um, realignment juice left in this realignment. What we, what you want to do to win in the way the Republicans win, whether they're in power or out of power, is that their messaging is geared towards making sure as many of their base and coalition, which includes right-leaning independents, most independents are not true swing voters. They lean to the left or they lean to the right, and their vote choice is basically 90% for that party that they lean for. So when you get down into that actual much smaller 10, 15% of the electorate swing basket, what the Republicans have been doing is pushing them away from us by basically brand disqualification yeah, that's messaging. Where Democrats are crazy. They're extremists. It's all the squad. They want to turn your yeah. men, children, and that's girls. What we've seen that in, kind in, of messaging is extremely effective because it taps right into human cognitive psychological processes and so what i'm getting my my work now in the last two years has been about fine uh switching our system communications wise into that kind of posture and and doing so because it attacks these underlying fundamentals of the midterm cycle that we can talk about now right yeah, and just saying, and the independence in in arizona what people forget is independent doesn't mean undecided it just often means somebody who just doesn't want to attach a label, but has a very clear defined set of viewpoints that are going to lead them to one party or the other. You know, we've found yeah. that in Arizona in the district we used to be and that was one third independence, but that didn't mean that they split evenly. It didn't mean that they would change. It pretty much meant that they had decided that they were almost certainly voting for one party or the other. And yeah, here's the thing, yeah. like the prior to this work that I've been doing, we've been blindly hunting within that Republican or that in, independent voter file and, and, and juicing all of it, okay? And what you do when you hit right-leaning independence, which is a good chunk of people, I mean, in Arizona you're talking about thousands, right? When you juice that right-leaning independent while you're hunting actual swing voters, what you do is you ensure that they show up to vote against you, and that's bad. Mm-hmm. 
you, you know, Rachel, you, before we get to the, the Senate um, uh, elections in, in 2022, which I'm, I'm really focused on, there was one thing that um, happened recently that really bothered me, and I wanted to get your take on it, and it has to do with the Stacey Abrams race in Georgia. Um, one of the one of the apparently one of the polls that's been done out there, and I don't know if you've heard about this, is showing that Stacey is not doing well with black men, and that could end up costing her the election. Are you hearing about that? And if and if you are, and if it's true, how do you account for it? If you can comment on that at all. Yeah, it's probably a really great opportunity to, to uh, so like Herschel Walker, who is an African American nominee in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, the the whole point of the Republican strategy in Georgia is to siphon off some of these black voters and get them to vote for Herschel Walker and for Brian Kemp. Okay, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the Republicans do treat their ticket to big marquee races as combination races, which is a weakness. That we have, like, what I mean by that is that Kelly and Hobbs, right, Mm -hmm. and uh, Fontes should all be running together, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Like, collectively coordinated, resource allocation optimized, all of that. Um, So I do think that if there's weakness within within black men in particular, the way to solve that weakness is to wedge row and uh, target black men you know, younger black men who don't have kids, you target them on, you know, the government invading their private, the Republicans invading their private lives. And then for the older, you know, dad, dad what I talk about is dad ads. And when I say dad ads should be going out, I mean all the dads, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> target dads and be like, hey, who should decide what happens to your daughter, you or the Republican governor, right? Yeah. So those are the kinds of, um, you know, messages I think that the Abrams campaign seriously consider if they need to, uh, if they want to close that gap. I mean, what's hurting her mostly, though, is that Kemp is a incumbent who's got this, you know, fair or not reputation of standing up in the threshold of democracy. He did before he, um, you know, completely capitulated to them. He stood up at the moment that it mattered, and that defines him. So you really want to undermine that brand, and you want to make sure you're hitting this abortion issue all through the voter yeah, in yeah. Georgia. Yeah, because my hope is that if this is true, that the, the black women in Georgia are so strong and tough and so supportive of Stacey, that they'll just grab their husbands or uh, their men by the scruff of the neck and drag them to the polls. Um, I think that that could happen only because of the row evisceration, and yeah. I can tell you why. <laughs> One of the most surprising findings I learned in my Ph.D., which focuses specifically on voter behavior polarization, mm-hmm. was that married women still, still all these decades later, Still will absorb their husband's political attitudes, and that's why you see such a bifurcation in public opinion data where single women are voting Democrat, and then they're still getting married and voting Republican because that's what their husband votes. So it's amazing to me that that's still an issue, but it's there in the data, and so the data don't lie. Yeah, well, I, I think that's especially true on the right, where where right-wing women are, are really swayed by, by what their husband's political uh, feelings are. Yeah, so what does that tell you strategically? It tells you that if you could move the men, Mm -hmm. those men, some of those men are dads. Some of them, like, you know, what what I talked about with Roe, the night that that memo leaked, I said this would change the moral politics. You don't understand everybody. (laughs) Like, this would change the moral politics of abortion 
from them to us immediately. And one of the ways that it's going to do that is, is through, you know, women's health and, and the risk of women. I mean, the stories have always favored these hypothetical babies who, if only had given a chance, would have all grown up to be the president of the United States, right? right, right. Now we're in, we're not dealing in hypothetical or abstraction. We're dealing in lead, and that lead is really the women. You know, news stories about women being told, "Hey, you have to carry a, a baby to term that's not viable inside of you with sepsis," and all these other horror stories, which have now made concrete for a lot of men and for conservative women. What, what it actually means to have no abortion with very few exceptions or none. And I think that concrete has, has left an opportunity for Democrats to hunt in the voter file, particularly among college-educated men and, and women who have been identified as, as still hanging into that Republican coalition. Yeah, I think we've all seen that in the news stories. But we are focusing on pregnant women who want to be pregnant and want babies who are being told that their doctor's afraid to give them cancer medication because it might cause an abortion. Yeah, so yeah. they're being, you know, they have to have a choice. You know, yeah. And then the doctor won't. Yeah, always you know, and we know it, right? Because yeah. you're old enough to remember the pre yeah. and post Roe time yeah. periods. And when there was legal access to abortion, it's easy to not support abortion because, again, the moral imperative is these unborn Babies. Yeah. You can't ask for a more. Now it seems like, to be switching uh, in some to, innocent yeah. being to be, yeah. be measured against. Now it's live but pregnant now women. That, that's not abstract. Yeah. It's, now it's reality, and the reality is unfortunately the women that are suffering under this cruel and yeah. unusual regime. Yeah, Rachel. Before we talk specifically about the the Senate and the House, and maybe uh, touch on the governor's races, um, especially the one in Arizona. Um, I saw a recent po- uh, podcast you did on YouTube. Um, I think it was on it was on August seventh, uh, and you said Biden needed to be more like Churchill and not like Chamberlain. After hearing his recent speeches, do you think he's finally channeling his inner Churchill? And if so, is is that going to help Democrats uh, in the next three months? I mean, I would call the speech. The, the use of the word semi-fascist and then the speech as as Biden being Churchill cu- curious. You know? <laughs> <And> <laughs> if he had said fascist, it would have been more like here, Churchill. I mean, here's the thing. Here's the message, right, that I would recommend to Joe Biden. Just complete and utter frankness of the severity of what we face. Mm-hmm. We're in a situation where we have a lawless ex-president who is a lawless president who didn't just break, you know, it wasn't some white-collar insider trading or even some tax evasion. We're talking about two cardinal sin, napalm, nuclear bomb uh, transgressions against the U.S. Justice Code. Right? Yeah, yeah, really. And so, like, if you don't prosecute that, you have no rule of law and you have set a standard of lawlessness and third-world you know, chaos for the United States of America. But if you do prosecute him, and obviously I, I fall down very heavily on, on the campus that you have to take your medicine, there will be some reaction. I do think that reaction has the potential to be violent. Oh, and yeah, I think absolutely. that's protect, uh, exactly why we have to uphold the rule of law right now in the United States, because you can't let the threat of violence be the thing that determines mm-hmm. whether someone's prosecuted. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, I was I was, had been praying for months that Biden would give a primetime speech exactly about these issues. 
And, you know, while I thought it was, an, it was a good speech and he, and he addressed some of the things that you were just talking about, I did come away not completely fulfilled because I thought he could go further and not work. But he's still got that, you know, bipartisan Senator Joe thing going on in his DNA that he can't completely uh, expunge, <laughs> it seems. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. You know, it's like, okay, uh, in 2016 and 2015, when it became, I was polling in Virginia, very fortunate, I had my own polling center, so I polled it extensively and for the horse race and for the Republican nomination. And there was so much in the data to suggest that Republican voters would not accept a standard bearer of Trump's ilk, okay? Mm -hmm. And so it made sense for Clinton at that time to pick Tim Kaine and to appeal to Republicans, and there was this thought that a lot of them would break loose, especially because so many of them in polling data even said that the party should broker the convention, right? Yeah. But we fast forward to Election Day, and the party generally rallied behind Trump, the candidate, the nominee, and at the end of the day, the data didn't lie. 90% of Republicans cast their ballots for Donald Trump, just like 90% of them did for Mitt Romney, and 90% of them did for John McCain. And we did see some loss in that 2015-2016 time period of some college-educated whites, independents, and Republicans who were like, yeah, I'm not taking that train. But by and large, we have not been able to fracture that Republican coalition and I don't think that today's any different. That's why I'm a fan of um, not differentiating between MAGA Republicans and the entire Republican Party, because the entire Republican Party used control of the House of Representatives to try to cover up the entire GM6 event, right? Yeah. They didn't even want to investigate it. So mm -hmm. we have a real problem in the Republican Party. It's a problem that's system-wide in that party, and I don't think we do ourselves... Uh, the voters any favors when we when we talk about MAGA Republicans because they can't to them that means oh the, this guy this Republican I want to vote for he's different right and and really in terms of their voting behavior they are not different and this is a time period where we must keep them from gaining political power but whatever the White House is doing to me the largest megaphone you know obviously not to me but you know in reality the biggest megaphone is going to come from that White House. So if Biden wants to call the MAGA Republicans and semi-fascism, that's fine with me. I'm just glad he's doing it. Yeah. So uh, the Senate, the Senate races, um, 53 seats for the Dems. Am I close? Oh, um, so this is what I will tell you. I don't do handicapping on individual races anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I announced that change right when I left right. and joined um, to, to go into Democratic messaging, right? Right. I don't think it's the appropriate overlap of my skills. So what I'm talking about is the system, and this, is, and this has been true for two years now. I mean, I understood that on election night of 2020 that if we could not pick up and hold or 14 houses, we should have been gaining houses, not losing 14 of them in 2020, yeah. um, that it, our down-ballot game cannot win in the best fundamentals of the best narrative a, a, a party could ever have, which was, of course, the Republican Party was killing 3,000 people a day and refusing to give anybody any economic assistance. Right, <laughs> so we right. shouldn't have been able to win that cycle. And I recognized right away... 22 with the midterm fundamentals flipping to favor the out party, which would then be Republicans, that we were going to be in a world of hurt, hurt yeah. unless we developed a system that, that aimed directly at the two fundamentals that drive the midterms. One of those is the generic ballot. 
who are you going to vote for, Republican or Democrat in the fall? And the other is something called the enthusiasm gap. So when you ask people, are you excited about voting, is there a difference between Republicans and Democrats? When you're the out party, both of those things advantage you. That means they both advantage the Republican Party and quite strongly. We saw the uh, result of that in Virginia in 2021 Mm -hmm. when they ran the same strategy they ran in 2018, 2019, and it didn't work this time because now they were, of course, the end party. Roe has really been the decisive factor in changing these fundamentals, but not to be lost in the idea that the a big chunk of the comm system of the party and its affiliated friends has shifted over into focusing on Republican extremism and bringing regular people, of which we are not and nobody listening to the show is, up to speed on what the modern Republican Party is all about. Right, right. Yeah, and we know it's it's still hard to combat the you know, sort of idea of, you know, I voted Republican, my father voted Republican, and to take your your viewpoint on what the party meant to you 20 years ago and think that it's still the same policies, the same party running. You know, it's it's hard to break that sort of link in states, states like Arizona that tend to be a little bit more conservative. Because we've had Republicans win statewide office here who hardly showed up once during the whole campaign. You know, they oh, were yes. non-existent, and, because, and they because just it is they had the right ID that drives it, right? And party so, like, ID. When you think about like that, right? Like when I say we're not normal, what I mean is, you know, if you know who Adam Schiff is, I mean, mm-hmm. heck, if you know who Nancy Pelosi is, you're not normal in terms <laughs> of the average American. And so if you think about what that means trickling down, it means they don't know anything about the Republican Party. They don't know anything about Mitch McConnell. So, like, you know, you ask these folks, tell me, what do, you know, what do you, what's the first thing that pops in your head when you hear the word Republican? I'm telling you, five out of ten times it's going to be low taxes, good for the economy, right? right? So we really have to be hitting people on that old-school brand identification, these people that you're talking about in particular, and we have to be telling them that is not this version of the Republican Party. Yes, this this so, idea of small government was a, I don't know if that was a Reagan quote or a tribute to Reagan or some of the, you know, government you can drown in the bathtub is not is not what the policies of necessarily the current Republican Party would be. It's much bigger. It's bigger government. It's a different kind of government. But this idea that you know government is pretty much going to have nothing to do with your life on the old-fashioned Republican idea that government is for you know the military and foreign policy. It's not for your day-to-day life. That's not hasn't been true. It wasn't true during you know just they're just different big government policies, right. and it's hard to make people start to think about that fact that the the Republican Party is as Policies are as likely to affect your day-to-day life as democratic policies. Big government is much on both more. sides. Yeah, much yeah. more likely. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, one I mean, may be the more. The odds of you encountering, like you know, some crazy, foamy mouth liberal, perf- you know, teacher who like takes your child yeah. and teaches them that Jesus isn't real or whatever. Very they don't slim exist <laughs> compared to tax policy, social security, yeah. Medicare, health policy, climate change. I mean, Arizona is going to run out of water. That is the most important issue in the state of Arizona. So we really need, and and when you talk about the messaging approach, not trying to sell your party but trying to disqualify, that's where you have the opportunity to inform less engaged people as to what the status of the Mm -hmm. modern Republican Party looks like and and how 
it will affect them directly in right. not good ways. Rachel, when when Dem- to pick up on this, when Democrats uh, pull their hair out of their head and say, "How can forty to forty five percent of voters in a certain state vote for Herschel Walker or vote for Kerry Lake or any of these extreme candidates?" Isn't it just the fact that most of the voters who are not, who are are not knowledgeable just vote for somebody because they've got an R next to their name? Yes, I mean, the reason that I can predict elections years before they occur, guys, is because not, all right, here's, let me explain how powerful party is at predicting vote choice. And that means for independent, most of the people, like, you know, you see in survey data, it's 35% independent. No, okay, most of those sort out when we analyze data, we ask them, do you mean, and then we take those leaners and we put them in with the partisans because we know they're just partisans who don't want to admit that they're partisans, okay? Mm-hmm. And then when we crunch that and we use it as a predictive model, what's the most important thing that will predict how someone's going to vote? It is party almost nine out of ten times. Mm. It's all party. Right. All party. Yeah, because, okay. I mean, <laughs> because when people look, I, I, well, I'll, I'll admit it, and I'm sure we can all admit it, when we go into the voting booth, um, whether we're Democrat or Republican, and we're looking at that laundry list of people running for a zillion offices, including local judgeships, we don't know anything about these people. We just flip, you know, cross the box because it's a D or an R. Almost nobody knows who their federal member of Congress is, let alone their state exactly. rep. Exactly. Yeah, and areas like Arizona, it's always been very Republican. Just politics have changed. When I moved to Arizona and to this this county, and you know, and voting in the you know the you know, the late 90s, in the 90s, and the early 2000s, there were very few Democrats running. But the Republicans who were running were people that had, you know, they, were, they had different viewpoints than some of the people today. Yeah, you know, we voted for Republicans, and knowing that that Republican would, would do at least some of what we wanted to have done. You know, then, you know this, this degree of extremity in the parties changed. In our particular district here, we had a Republican representative state senator who's now our Democratic congressman. And his platform hasn't changed in 25 years, 20 years. He says the same things. The party has changed. You know, so he changed his he changed a letter after his name because that was the only way people were going to listen to him. But but there's a lot of people who in that that sort of area in Arizona who still think I voted for these wonderful Republicans in 2000 or 2002. And I'm going to vote Republican without having any idea that the Republican on their ballot now doesn't believe anything that the guy in 2002 did. You know, but that's right. Yeah. So to me, you know, where do you where can you the Republicans did they had a realignment. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was for non-college educated whites. They have now extended that messaging and strategy out to all non-college educated voters. So they target long education and they use cultural war and grievance politics mm-hmm. to inflame people and distract them, right? So what we need to be doing is leaning into our own realignment, which is also along education and is also across race, and making sure that, that you know, these long school suburban Republicans know what they're voting for now when they go and they, they vote on that party heuristic. Because to them, Republican that R stands for right now is largely low tax, good for the economy. And if we hit them with brand 
advertising, bringing them up to speed to what the modern Republican Party looks like, we can push them towards us. Absolutely. Um, I know you're not doing the forecasting like you did before 2018, but do you have a sense of what is possible for Democrats in the in the congressional races? Is, is it going to be the usual uh, the the party and the presidency loses the way it's gone most of the time, or because of the abortion issue and the momentum that seems to be going on right now toward toward Democrats, do they have a shot to keep the House? Well, we can tell exact, I mean, pretty much exactly what to expect based off of the aggregated generic ballot and the aggregated enthusiasm gap, which means um, taking a bunch of polls and combining them together to see what the collective story is from them, not one poll here or there. And what we, um, you know, months ago I wrote and I said, listen, these are the two indicators that matter. Here's how we can undermine or move them as the in-party. And we got a huge assist from Roe in that. I mean, mm-hmm. we could be doing everything we're doing right now, and the forecast would still predict a Republican Senate and Republican House if it wasn't for Roe of it being eviscerated and us tapping into that angst. But um, as of today, that generic ballot, which initially favored Republicans by almost three points, has first inverse, then tied, and now has headed north for Democrats. We're up to, um, I think, a couple points on it. But what they really need is four or five to be in contention, just in contention for that House majority. Mm. Um, However, being at plus two, probably good enough to hold the Senate only because um, the weakness of the Senate field has really added into that. But, you know, it's it's a totally different map. It favors us a little bit in terms of some buffer. But the two hard Senate races that we have are the Arizona and Georgia Senate races. And it doesn't matter that Carrie Lake is, and, and um, Lake Herschel Masters Walker, and yeah, Fincham and are Masters, actually yeah. fascist candidates. Yeah. Um, unless we tell, you tell, people tell in Arizona, tell the broader electorate that story and why it would impact them directly, that many people will go and vote for them just off that old party ID. Yeah, and of course today's media world. I mean, the, like in Arizona, the campaign commercials that the Kelly Mark Kelly campaign itself is putting out are all very positive on those, some of those very same lines on what Kelly has done for you, what he will do for you. They're very positive in bringing some of those strands in, but of course they're running on television and in today's fragmented world. How many people even see those? campaign commercials anymore versus what they found on some tweet or some YouTube video that says something that's not fact-based and might be exactly the opposite. You know, the campaigns can have a, a, a different way to get their message out because lots of people don't see that traditional thing. They don't, they don't see that, that carefully crafted commercial. Uh, Rachel, Rachel, yeah, um, running close to out of time. Here, yeah. So we, Rachel, yeah. Katie Hobbs has said she's not going to debate Carrie Lake. Do you think that's a, bad strategy yeah so we're starting to see a proliferation of uh on both sides of the aisle people who are deferring debate right i mean some of it was initially pushed by republicans and um you know especially after john ossoff and the georgia senate race eviscerated david purdue Mm -hmm. we saw republicans like glenn youngkin you know wanting to pull back out of debates uh, but in the case of, like, general debate stuff, and now we're starting to see Democrats do it, here's the thing. Like, a front, like I used to teach this, you know, a, a strategy in my campaigns course. 
Like, when you look at debates, like, there's actually almost no advantage at all if you're a strong front-runner to entering a debate. So, um, because you, you stand to lose more than you can gain. Debates are more important for exposure for lesser-known candidates, people who have no name ID or people who are trying to close a big gap because they might have a moment, like Ronald Reagan's, you know, I'm not going to hold my <laughs> opponent's youth and experience against them where they're right, right. Yeah, that, ba- that one bad line everybody remembers. Yeah, I think we're, headline, you we're know? Just, Sometimes debates, especially in primary yeah. elections, can be very, yeah. very um, important. Yeah. Presidential I think, Rachel, we're just about that. out of time here. And the things, So we may have to sort of take that as, as the last thought. And thank you so much for coming on. You talked about a lot of things we can all think about when we look at the, the polls and the news on what's going on in the midterms right now. So um, thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. Um, please remember our, our guest next week is going to be State Senator Martin Quezada, who is running for the Arizona State Treasurer after a long career in the, in the legislature and the Senate in Arizona. So please tune in to hear from him. And then we've got, we'll have Tom O'Halloran on live in the studio on uh, September 26th. Been listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.